Welcome back to Food for the Future. I'm Sarah. Ameze Maduka is a registered nutritionist and founder of Life's Recipe, a health consultancy that offers individual and corporate wellness coaching with an inclusive health at every size ethos. She holds a bachelor's and master's degree with distinction in clinical nutrition and is also the co-founder of the Diverse Nutrition Association, which helps healthcare professionals decolonize nutrition education and counseling. Through workshops on merging cultural foods with dietary guidelines and their signature course, Understanding Cultural Diversity in Nutrition and Health Practice, recently debuted at the University of Brighton, Ameze and her partners help providers examine their biases, normalize traditional foods in nutrition interventions, and create a culture of respect in food spaces. Ameze, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for that introduction as well. It's lovely. <laughs> We're so thrilled to have you here. If we can, let's just start by getting our listeners up to speed. Can you explain to them how colonization shows up in today's diet and why that is detrimental? This is this is such a meaty question as um, colonization shows up in so many ways. So if we if we think about what colonization actually means, it it essentially involves establishing that political control over an indigenous population. So now, if we relate this to food and health, a lot of the the messages in place, well, such as in you know the UK and the US, the the health research, health guidelines, and and food examples that are presented are very Eurocentric, despite the growing level of ethnic and cultural diversity and what can what can happen is this can leave communities not only alienated because their foods are not represented but often confused because they now feel like they need to change to a more eurocentric diet to be considered healthy and maybe um, receiving less optimal um, care and service because the research behind some of the health recommendations didn't include them in the sampling. So the outcomes may not represent them also. And this is even you know, more important to understand because research shows that many common diseases like cardiovascular disease and um, diabetes, they disproportionately affect um, ethnic minority groups. So it does show up in many ways uh, and there is a lot of work to be done to... Um, I guess, decolonize the, the healthcare system and, and nutrition. Absolutely. And it, it seems really sneaky. It's a way that power dynamics are playing into people's everyday lives that we don't even realize. Imagine the internalization of those beliefs that this food that has sustained my people for generations before these colonizers arrived is somehow you know, not worthy or not fit for consumption. And just yeah. to be completely clear, there are no health benefits seen from a Eurocentric diet that they are not seen in other diets. Is that correct? Exactly. Exactly that. Every yeah. every type of cultural diet has benefit. It, they all have some sort of leafy, you know, uh, fruits and vegetables. They all have types of healthy fats there. They can all fit into a healthy, balanced diet. So lots of health benefits and non-communicable disease risk reduction benefits as well. Are there other benefits that might not be seen in health necessarily? If 
people were eating these diets from their places of origin for long before folks came in and started changing farming protocols and industrializing the food system, are there perhaps environmental benefits as well to returning to a pre-colonial diet? I think there is a potential to improve, you know, the environmental outcomes, you know, whilst decolonizing food as well. And I believe that this is actually a conversation that needs to be had more often, not just a conversation, but things need to be put in place there. And it's there's something called food sovereignties, which which is um, for those who who haven't heard this term. It's essentially the right for people to have healthy and culturally appropriate food produced through um, ecologically sound and sustainable methods and their right to define their own food and agricultural systems. Now, transforming um, food production away from the dominant practices of industrial agriculture has the potential to actually cause less environmental disturbances than um, industrial practices. So, I, I'm, I'm fortunate to have access to my in-laws allotment here in the UK and they've actually had this allotment for decades and there are there are many cultural foods that they're able to grow such as things like callaloo um, which is a type of green leafy vegetable pumpkins and sweet potato and even in my in my parents house on the windowsill you find that my my mum grows something called water leaf which is uh, something that she puts in traditional soups and like while I say I say this with a full understanding that this can't apply to you know all foods because of the weather differences um, for example but there is an opportunity to incorporate certain cultural foods into the local systems as it's been done on a micro level as I just highlighted there is opportunity to do that in some in some areas so yeah there is definitely place for you know environmental benefit here I, I believe anyway exciting and helping people see that they can you know create a little bit more autonomy for themselves for the foods that they're eating and rewrite the narrative of their health I'm, I'm guessing though that it's different to tell people that and then to tell healthcare professionals that. Uh, so what foods do you see frequently misunderstood by healthcare professionals that are sort of Eurocentric white presenting folks or feared by eaters that are trying to improve their health? Are there certain foods that they don't understand that sometimes get vilified in those healthy eating guidelines? Yes. Now I'm going to mention a food item, which um, I guess is quite controversial a lot of slack and it's not necessarily um i wouldn't you know say it's a health food or non-health food it's a food item and this is palm oil so palm oil has put a lot of slack because of the deforestation and um, they've talked about the wildlife and things like that now when i talk about palm oil i'm talking about the orange or red palm um, unrefined oil that's derived from the palm fruit that's common in West African dishes. Now, palm fruit is a very valuable crop to West Africa, and it's been responsible for helping to alleviate food deprivation and poverty in parts of Africa. Now, like I said, it has received a lot of bad press due to you know the deforestation, global warming, health concerns, and, um, you know, including raised cholesterol and heart disease and things like that. Now, while the intention behind this criticism 
is most likely well-intentioned when it comes to palm oil. It's actually, it has its foundations in colonialism. Now, I, it's, it's again, it's not something that's very much spoken about, but it's, it's, I'm quite passionate about it when it comes to this because of the fact that people don't realise that the criticisms are rooted in colonialism. So the use of palm oil, it can be dated back to thousands of years. And when the Industrial Revolution hit, the palm nuts' lucrative qualities were recognised by European traders who then introduced it to Southeast Asia making places like I think Indonesia and Malaysia the main producers of palm oil in the region. Now Malaysia and Indonesia also have the largest areas of rainforests um, which is home to you know the orangutans, um, tigers and, and the animals that people are currently you know protesting to save currently and that's where the concerns are around the mass deforestation required to produce palm oil in the um, the tropical regions outside of Africa. Now, the palm oil indigenous to West Africa, it actually forms the staple of many mills. And it's not the same as the palm oil used in things like chocolate, certain ice creams. This is the refined type. And it's often made using the palm kernel, not the palm fruit. And by using the palm kernel, that actually requires a larger industrial process that actually goes beyond traditional West African processes. And this is where a lot of the confusion exists and where palm oil indigenous to West Africa gets wrongly demonized. So I know I've probably just um, rambled on there, but it's really important for people to understand that whilst palm oil, when, when I mention palm oil to people, they're like, no, 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 we're not, we're not budging on this. It's really important that people understand that it has its place in cultural foods and there is a difference between West African palm oil and heavily industrialised palm oil that's used um, and it's causing that deforestation and things like that. Wow, that is so fascinating. That Thank you. I had no idea that there was a difference between the oil from the palm kernel versus the palm fruit. And I'm seeing a lot of similarities to this history that you've just told me and the history of sugar cane and then the industrial mm-hmm. sugar production and eventual sugar plantations uh, with slaves in the United States. That's, wow, really, really interesting to see the way that the narratives of those two food items have been yeah. warped by by time and impressions yeah. from colonizers. Wow. And it's, it's not to say that the oil is super healthy or anything to uh, allow people to understand that it you know they don't need to abandon palm oil it's just about you know the portion sizes and and balance and things like that so yeah yeah so is that something that you speak with your clients about about Mm -hmm. using portion sizes or balancing out the macronutrients in their foods how do you advise them when it comes to integrating their cultural foods yeah so exactly that it's about the portion sizes it's about whatever food it is so if they say they want to um, include red red or which is a, a, like a bean stew which can contain palm oil in there, it's about, okay, what quantity are we having there? You know, if there's a concern about I want to reduce my saturated fat, okay, let's see if we can even use a little less oil. It doesn't mean to say that you need to reduce every bit of the oil, but reduce it or reduce the portion size. And, you know, even if it's like a, for example, let's say a 
balanced breakfast that has cultural elements to it. So let's say if we're talking about a, a Caribbean breakfast, it could be things like callaloo, um, plantain, um, you know, a protein of choice. And, or if it's, it could be beans, if it's plant based or animal based, if it's animal based, it could be something like fish or things like that. And then um, they, um, in the Caribbean, they eat hard dough bread. And there's actually wholemeal hard dough bread as well, which has higher fiber. So this can form a balanced breakfast, a balanced meal, and still remain adhering to cultural, to your cultural foods if you want to. It's not to say that everybody wants to, but if that is something that people do want to do, there is possibility, there's a possibility there. Or um, there's an Ethiopian porridge made of cracked wheat called um, kimchi which again is something that can form a, a balanced breakfast form a healthy breakfast keep you going till lunch as well so yeah so western western influences have impacted how people eat their cultural foods and we actually did a study and found that with the diverse nutrition association we found that many people of minority ethnic groups may not always have their cultural foods but they have maybe instead about three to four times a week so whether it's you know on some days they might have toast and beans and this is for this is for the English the English lot have beans <laughs> and, toast and, and things like that um, then sometimes some days they may have you know plantain and egg or ackee and callaloo on another day so it's very much based on their level of acculturation which is how much they have assimilated with the dominant culture. Seems like it's it's just broadening people's toolbox as well. I heard mm-hmm. you describe that breakfast and there was a high fiber carb, dark, dark leafy greens, there was a protein source. And I'm thinking about my breakfast. I live in Brooklyn, New York. I had a piece of sourdough with avocado and an egg yes. and some spinach. So all the building blocks are still there. We're just saying to people, hey, you can choose from six different sets of building blocks or just the one if you want to. But doesn't it sound a lot more fun to have a lot more tools at your disposal, especially mm-hmm. ones that provide a deep connection with your culture and your sense of self? That's really exciting. Yeah. You mentioned the Diverse Nutrition Association, and I'd love to talk with you about that. So you work with your partners to to then work with universities, correct, to broaden impressions of healthy diet as future professionals are training so that new folks coming into the field of nutrition know how to best advise clients from diverse populations. Is that correct? Yeah, so it's it's universities and um, organizations and health professionals as well. Wow. So the current curricula, then I imagine, does that reinforce colonized ideas of nutrition and the Diverse Nutrition Association comes in to change those? Yeah, when it comes to the generic nutrition curriculum, it's, I know it's so difficult to fit every single thing into into teaching. So sometimes concepts relating to diversity and and cultural sensitivity can often you know take a back seat but what this curriculum does is uh, the 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 standard curriculum is it can actually leave people graduating without understanding cultural humility cultural sensitivity and how their own impact in um, perpetuating culturally incompetent behaviors or culturally um, insensitive behaviors can have an impact and this course essentially helps to heal that because it's 
so important that we understand different cultural practice, but we're also understanding our own cultural knots and where we may be judging someone else through our own cultural lens because our own culture has as much as an impact in how we communicate and deliver care as the patient's um, or client's culture as well. So that's what we're doing with this curriculum. It's it's definitely a journey, but we're definitely um, seeing how it's been impacting people, impacting students and other health professionals as well. So Amazing. And I like that you brought up cultural humility because I think we've come to a place where we recognize that cultural competency is not enough. It's not something you can learn in a book and then know how to advise everyone that identifies as part of that culture because Mm -hmm. culture is a moving target. It's alive, it's breathing, it's constantly shifting. Um, So the Diverse Nutrition Association does a great job of being an educator, but also being a listener and listening louder than you speak sometimes is a phrase that I love. Mm -hmm. Um, So if there are any other nutrition professionals listening today, do you have any advice that you could give them or questions that you might pose that they ask themselves before offering a blanket recommendation, like in the Lancet report or the Eat Well Guide or other national dietary guidelines that folks are producing? Yeah, I think um, first it's, it's important to understand that nobody can really be culturally competent. Um, as you mentioned, we can be culturally humble, we can be culturally sensitive. So because it is, it's always a moving target there. And in terms of what we can do, it's, it's, really, it's really a give and take when it comes to questioning. And often more listening is required than, than questioning anyway. So the key thing is that when you're building a picture of your client's or patient's lifestyle that we ensure that we haven't made an assumption based on who they are or um, what they, you know, what, what you may know about maybe their country or maybe something that you've generalized. And a lot more information can actually be sought by nonverbal language as well. So with, with cross-cultural communication, when explaining your perceptions of the health condition it may be important to keep in mind that the client or the patient may understand it very differently whether that's based on culture or ethnicity so it's really important to be respectful when discussing any differences and kind of highlighting those areas of agreement as well as difference and then kind of work together with that person or with the person's family or the person's community to kind of incorporate those culturally relevant approaches that work for the patient's or, or client's progress. So it's about listening. It's about understanding, the discussing and being respectful of any of those differences and highlighting those areas of agreement as well as difference. So I think those are the key things there. Those are excellent tenants. I love that. And I think that you could <laughs> use those tenants anytime you're, you're trying to communicate with someone and, and reach a conclusion. You mentioned not making decisions sight unseen or even at first sight when working with a population. And a common factor I find that 
influences nutrition advice is a person's body size if we are making recommendations at first sight. You make uh, health recommendations within a health at every size framework. So for those who are not familiar with that, can you explain what health at every size or haze is and how that fits in with offering diverse and respectful nutrition counseling? Yeah, so health at every size or, or haze, it stands for Hay stands for health at every size. And what it does is it takes away the focus from weight or weight loss as the health goal. Because um, a lot of the time we we feel that weight loss is the, you know, it means that, you know, you're, you're, you're at the ultimate level of health. But then by taking away, you know, weight loss as the health goal, it then helps to reduce that stigma towards people in larger bodies. And it's, it's also important to, the reason why health at every size is really key within healthcare is because someone who is thin or weighs less is not necessarily healthy. And someone who weighs more is not necessarily unhealthy. Weight is essentially tells us it's a scale. It doesn't tell us what's going on inside of our bodies. And it's, I think it's something that we've been, been brought up um being told that you know you you have to be a, look a certain way and you have to weigh a certain amount to be considered healthy and that's that's actually not true in many cases so um and we don't want to just look at someone and try and make a judgment because i've i've seen so many clients who've actually felt that they've seen a, a gp or they've or just a doctor or something like that and immediately they've been told that they must go on a weight loss program without actually being assessed um, the same way someone else may have been assessed. And that could actually lead to other health implications where they're not getting seen to in the same way. And they may not have, you know, there may be some, something else going on inside them that has not actually been um, identified. So it can actually, it can have a, a, a health impact by not following the kind of health at every size approach. And Absolutely. Would, the research yeah. we have about the effects of weight stigma is really compelling. So, you know, that's one aspect of it. And then when I remember that so many folks in larger bodies have undiagnosed eating disorders simply because mm -hmm. they are in larger bodies, but are really exhibiting behaviors that would be cause for a grave concern if someone in a smaller body was exhibiting them. And then zooming out a little bit further and remembering that for most if someone lost a significant amount of weight in a short time, that would be cause for grave concern. Exactly. Um, and it's only recently yeah. that we've somehow decided that that's a good thing. So it seems yeah. like health at every size isn't really revolutionary. It should be the standard for offering nutrition guidance. And I suppose in the lens of colonization, the ideas that we have about what a healthy weight is for a population are completely rooted in Eurocentric ideals. Oh, for sure. Definitely. I um, for I was going to do my traditional wedding in um, Nigeria, my my cousins actually said to me, you need to eat, you need to eat, you need to eat more. Because in my culture, we wear these beads. And my cousins were saying, the beads need to fall on you in a certain way. So I recommend you have chocolate and ice cream every day. <laughs> and and <laughs> we don't want to see those collarbones. We don't, we don't need to see the collarbones because the beads won't fit very well. So in, other, in some cultures, you need to have that, you know, that weight on you. In other fairly um, Eurocentric cultures, you need to be very thin and things like that. So it's, it's interesting how the Eurocentric standard has become 
well the eurocentric view has become the standard yeah it's 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 just very interesting there but yeah that's fascinating i we were saying before we started recording i am recently married as well and at my bridal appointments they asked me how much weight do you plan on losing and oh, i was gosh. like what what like uh, none um <laughs> so it's it's definitely interesting to see the differences there yeah <laughs> very very interesting <laughs> Amaze, this has been so enlightening and helpful. You're a breath of fresh air to talk to, and I'm so excited to keep following your work and the work of the Diverse Nutrition Association. Where can other folks follow along? I've got the my Life's Recipe um, platform, which is at Life's underscore recipe, and then the Diverse Nutrition Association, which is at Diverse Nutrition Association. So it's Life's underscore recipe on all platforms and at Diverse Nutrition Association on all platforms also. Thank you so much for joining us. (laughs) I can't wait for our our listeners to hear more of your wisdom. Amaze, thanks for joining Food for the Future. No worries. Thank you.